Our scripture reading this morning is 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let us... Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, as we study your word this morning, may may we behold you more than the treasures of this world, even as great as they may be. Father, may we uh, worship you as our Creator, and our God, and our Lord, and our Savior, and Redeemer, Redeemer, and such. Father, for your glory and our good, it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. I want to think about, just for a moment, <clears throat> the idea of responding to life. Um, there's much of life that happens that we can't look ahead and preclude, and we can't look ahead and account for, and do things ahead of time. There's much of life that we just have to simply respond to. We can't plan for things that are outside of our control that we have to respond. And, 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 and when it comes to those times of things that we have to respond to, and the, the question is, is, how do we respond? How do you respond in those moments? There's a, a myriad of ways that you and I can respond, again, to these various aspects of Life. Now, I'm willing to bet <clears throat> that our response to life, when it goes the way we planned or had hoped, our response is probably graceful, hopeful, uh, maybe even happy, joyful, etc. But how about when life does not go as you had hoped? Now, I mean, some of us are thinking like, right in this moment, we're thinking, life not going as it had I had hoped and some of us are thinking yesterday didn't go as I had hoped and everything in between right you, you all those all the above you can track with me here but life has not gone as I had hoped that conversation didn't go as I had hoped or maybe at work and if we can drive more into the context of first Peter here maybe at work you're it's not going as you had hoped. Maybe you're being shunned or gossiped about because you won't gossip with other people. Or maybe at school, you're seen as uh, the person who's maybe too good for others because you won't do the same things that everyone else does that in your heart and conscience seems to be evil and unrighteous. Or maybe you've been suffering in many other ways. And life is not what you had dreamed of. 
I want to remind you that to be a follower of Christ in Peter's day meant being very separate from the rest of the world. Right? They, they wouldn't attribute life and goods and resources to the same idols. They wouldn't participate in the same rituals, etc. So their decisions were affecting trade and business and the success of the culture in those ways. And so they had pulled away from these things, and, and because of that, suffering was coming upon those in First Peter. For us, in many ways, we've enjoyed a culture largely shaped traditionally by Judeo-Christian values and worldview. And even still today, nominal Christianity, so those we would say who... It, the way I'm defining nominal Christianity, those who are not truly followers of Jesus, but claim some kind of name, they're, what, what I would, maybe another term would be cultural Christians, sort of nominal Christianity, they, in many ways still have a place in our culture, like still, that's still largely welcomed, just, just an observation here, don't, don't nail me to the wall on that, but it's, it's largely welcome. That's increasingly becoming unwelcome. But then you're seeing this nominal Christianity and cultural Christianity begin to mold and shift in such a way that it becomes acceptable to the culture. And so there's, in many ways, no distinction between the two. But we've enjoyed for decades, even centuries, this at least a general sense of acceptance of Christianity. But what we're seeing particularly over the past few decades, is that's becoming increasingly less the case. It's becoming increasingly less the case that truly following Jesus is an acceptable means of life in our culture. And I think, I, I, don't, I don't want to be a doomsday person, right, and a prophet in this sense, but looking ahead, and in many of our lifetimes, we're going to see I think, where Christianity just is flat out not acceptable. To follow Jesus will relegate us to the side. Maybe even bring about suffering. I, I don't know. The, the Lord may come back before then, or, you know, something might change. But nevertheless, it's in that trajectory. Tolerance is everywhere except for Christianity in many ways. And it's decreasing uh, in its reality and in its case. So what's happening over the past few decades, and I think going to increasingly so, is suffering in, two, in a couple different ways. And I think if you track with me, you'll see what I'm talking about, at least for the past couple decades, and is going to be the case as we move forward. And we're going to suffer at the hands of two places. True followers of Jesus are going to suffer at the hands of two places. It's really one, but two separate categories, or two subcategories. One is suffering at the hands of just secular world, the, the society at large. The agenda of many movements in our culture, like, for instance, the sexual revolution that is still on the move, it's still marching forward, it's still growing in leaps and bounds. The idea there is if you won't celebrate our desires with us, our way of life with us, then you have no place among us. So there's this, it's not just you got to be okay and give me the way we want, but I, you have to actually celebrate it with us. And it's not just the sexual revolution. That's the case in many ways, in many other movements in our culture as well. 
<clears throat> so in that case, I think some suffering has already come and is going to increase as time moves on. But then also suffering, again, is kind of a subcategory here, or a, another, another area, suffering at the hands of the supposed church, the supposed church in our culture. Those who would claim Christ, those who even on the outside might have polished bowls, but their hearts are far from Christ. So, and I think many of us have sensed this in our culture, right? particularly over the past four or five years, I've noticed this particularly in, in my experience, that there's this group of Christianity that much like the Pharisees, as long as we check off the right boxes, particularly in the ballot, in the voting booth, and as long as we do these other checkboxy things that my life is Christian, But our hearts are oftentimes far from it. Hearts are far from it. So <clears throat> if I could just, I don't want to feel like you're, I'm on a hobby horse here, and I, and I truly don't think I am. But like, for example, like the immigration thing, you know, refugees and caring for the sojourner and such. I'm not getting into policy and none of that kind of stuff. But, but listen, as Christians, our hearts should break for people without a home. Right? Because we of all people should know what it's like to be a people without a home. Again, I'm not getting into whether our borders should look this way or that way or this tall or that short. I'm not. But our hearts should break first for people without a home before our hearts break about policy. So that's, again, that's an example of someone breaking first about these other things. Supposedly Christians, our hearts are to break. So, so there's this there's sense in which even I've experienced a measure of suffering at the hands of the supposed church because my outward lookings doesn't look the exact same. And I think many of you have experienced the same thing. This, it's also, a, a, we also see this in this culture of tradition over the word so this is the way we've always done it this is what's valuable and this is what I was in a meeting this past week with a person uh, talking about they asked the question why like why can't we drink alcohol like why can't why do Baptists not drink alcohol <clears throat> and basically the answer that one Baptist pastor gave this lady was because well, she asked the question, well, how come Catholics can go do it on Saturday night and then go ask for forgiveness on Sunday, and, but Baptists can't even walk into a liquor establishment, and American Baptists uh, can walk in, but they just can't drink, right? That was her, the three questions, right? I'm, sitting, I'm telling you, I was in this question. It sounded like a bad joke. Uh, <clears throat> and the answer that she got, and, and listen, this, this is her reason why she left the church. The answer she got was, well, John the Baptist came first, the Catholics messed it up, and since the Baptist came first, they got to set the rules. Now, I know, right, we laugh at that, like, that's hilarious, but this is a real-life situation. I'm sitting in a meeting and going, I, I. <clears throat> that's all crap. <laughs> Throw me a beer, because I need a drink after that one. Jeez. 
So listen, in many ways, because of the tradition of these people over and above the authority of the word, there has been, to some measure, suffering in this woman's life because of this. Now, a lot of it's because of her own decisions and, and not continuing the quest for the truth, but landed us in the meeting together, so clearly God's doing something in this lady's life. Here's the deal. We find ourselves caught off guard when life doesn't go the way we had envisioned. Why is this happening? Why am I sitting here in the midst of suffering? I'm trying to stand for the truth. Maybe it's a relative. Maybe it's a relative I'm sitting next to at the table and suffering at the hands of their sin. And we're caught off guard. Where did this come from? This is not what I had hoped for. This is not what I envisioned. This is not the way life was supposed to be. But indeed, this is the the way life is to be. This is God's vision for the way life is to be. God's way of life is not a way of life that accommodates your desire and my desire to sovereignly rule in order to accomplish the vision that we have for life. That's not God's way of life. And we're surprised because when, when suffering comes upon us because we think that that is the way life is to be. This is my vision. This is my plan. What can I do to make sure that it happens? And God's saying that's not the plan. That's not God's way that life is supposed to be. Instead, God has called us to a life that is so full of joy in Him that you would be willing and able to walk into difficulty, to walk headlong into suffering, to not run from the pain of this life, but to say, how can I move forward faithfully into it? That's God's vision for life. We would not run from difficulty, not run from suffering, but we would instead run headlong into it, trusting, resting in Him. So I think in this passage, we get six exhortations on how to respond to suffering. Six exhortations on how to respond to suffering. The first one is this. Don't be surprised by suffering. I already touched on this one. But again, don't be surprised by suffering. I wish more of us could have time to sit with missionaries that are in countries where persecution is happening. It would help, first of all, make us a little more sensitive to those things and prayer for those things, but but also might help us wake up to the reality of where we are called to swim against the culture and maybe where we're not. We talked about this last week, that many of us aren't experiencing suffering because we're just swimming right along with the culture. But nevertheless, in verse 12, he says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Listen, according to our modern thought and culture, suffering should be abnormal. It should be the anomaly. It should be the exception to the rule. Indeed, we do everything we can to avoid suffering. Every single one of us in this room. 
Ever thought, just for a moment, I want, if you could spend some time this week, catalog the time, energy, money that is spent or has been spent or you're currently spending in order to avoid suffering. Oftentimes we change jobs to avoid suffering. We move neighborhoods to avoid suffering. Churches leave the inner city often to avoid suffering. We arrange our schedule. We avoid certain conversations to alleviate suffering. And if suffering still comes, our view is that it should be dealt with quickly so that, quote, normal life can return. Get it taken care of. Spend what money we have to. Cut off the relationships that we need to. Arrange the schedule so that it can get there. But here's the hard truth. If you're thinking that suffering is out of place in your life, then you are not thinking biblically about suffering. Like what Paul Tripp said. The degree to which suffering is strange to us shows us the degree to which we need to grow in our allegiance to and our understanding of what God is actually about. We must grow in our understanding and our allegiance to this. Listen, I, I, I see it pastoral. I see it in my own life. I see it in the lives of people in our church that we're incredibly adverse to God's design and plan. Look at how we respond to hard things. Look at how you've responded to the idea of us merging with the church. Look at your own heart. Ask the question, how am I responding to what I'm perceiving as potential suffering? Or how about when DNA gets tough? When your one-on-two discipleship group gets tough? How are you responding to that moment? How are we spending our money? This week, how are you going to spend money when the decisions are tough and life is hard? How will you spend God's resources this week? Again, often, oftentimes we run from hard conversations. We run from challenging relationships. We run from these things. We don't want to face the suffering. Or maybe we don't run from them per se, but we run from them in a, in a, like a metaphorical sense, meaning we, we're in the moment, we're physically there, but in the moment we're running from the relationship and it might look like self-defensiveness or self-justification or argument, like our pride is coming out. And so what's happening in that moment is you're running from the truth. You're running from the, the, the potential of suffering in that moment. So it's self-preservation mode, although you're physically still there. But you're doing everything you can to avoid what you think might be suffering. If we think suffering is out of place in life, in your life, in my life, then we are not thinking biblically about suffering. Let me ask the question, why is suffering God's plan? I have a few answers here. One is, He has strategically chosen this world for you to be His light in the midst of the harsh realities that we face each day. 
He has chosen his bride, his, his son's bride, his church, to be a light in the midst of the harsh realities as they face the same harsh realities. He's not taken us out of this place. Later, Peter will say, entrust the creator while doing good. More on that in a bit. We've been left here to glorify his name by doing his good works in the midst of suffering. It's also his plan because Christ is our new identity. For those who are in Christ, he is our new identity. Listen, sin and evil targeted Jesus. What makes us think that sin and evil is not going to target us? If our identity is in him, then the things that came to him... All of it are just as likely to come to us except for that one thing, right? The wrath of God upon us for our sin. But everything else is game. Separation from God for all of eternity? Nope, not part of the game. Being scorned for righteousness' sake? It's part of the game. Running to difficulty? Because difficulty is... Staring us right in the face? Yes, that's game. Why is suffering? Listen, if you stand with Christ and step out of our selfish way of living, your life will, cons- will constantly be offensive to those that live that way. Constantly be offensive to those who live that way. Next, why is suffering part of God's plan? Because God is using the suffering to continue His work of grace in you. That's the fiery trial and test. This needs to remind you of the earlier passage in 1 Peter. In uh, chapter 1, it's 3 through 9, where he's talking about the, the metallurgist, right? Where he's purifying the metals. Through the fire and the heat, the metals are purified. Listen, to suffer is to be blessed because it marks one as belonging to God's obedient followers upon whom His Spirit rests. Do you hear that? Suffering for righteousness' sake is a blessing because it tells us, it shows us that we are marked as one upon whom God's Spirit rests. So how surprised are you when suffering comes? It's an incredible sign of His grace. The reality is, is when misfortune comes, if it is unexpected, it is likely more unbearable. But when it's expected, this is a part of the plan. Ah, okay. This isn't coming out of nowhere. This is a part of God's plan. I should have expected this. Okay, all right, God, what's next? Let's go. So don't be surprised. Second, fix your eyes on joy. Fix your eyes on joy. Aim for rejoicing. 13 through 14. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of God, uh, sorry, the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, here's what he's not saying. Let's, 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 let's say what we're denying or what he's not saying. <clears throat> that there is joy and pain or happiness in the suffering itself. 
the actual pain of the moment. We're not talking about that in that pain, that there is joy to be found in that pain. Listen, it is good and right to feel pain when the world is rejecting us. To feel pain when suffering has come upon us. To hurt when we've been hurt. We should not laugh at pain and sickness as though it is some sort of delight. This is not a call to coldness or emotional suppression. Instead, indeed, it's actually a healthy embrace of of this side of our experience. But, let me also clarify too, it's not a call to be controlled by the pain of the experience, by the pain of the suffering. To not be controlled by the pain of the circumstances, to be ruled by the suffering. So he's not saying that we rejoice in the pain. Now here's the struggle. Even in the midst of minor difficulty, so hang on to that first thought with me. I'm going to come back around to it, but here's the struggle. Even in the midst of minor difficulties and setbacks and minor suffering, you and I say and think things that we would never want anyone else to know. That, that didn't go my way. What are we thinking? Dude, where was God on that? Or man, I could have done better. I, my plan was better than that. Right? Ever, ever done that? I doubt any of us said, and maybe you did, but many of us probably didn't say, all right, God, your plan was terrible. This was my plan. But when we are so dissatisfied with the way it happened, we are oftentimes in our hearts implying, God, your plan was terrible. Mine would have been better. So we say things, even in minor, right, going down the road and someone cuts you off, like, my gosh. I mean, that's one for me. I don't know about you, but here comes pain, and all we want to do is sleep or play video games to escape, find a new spouse or a new job, find a new church, reach for a bottle, scream at our kids. And here Peter is saying, though, in the midst of suffering, rejoice. Be joyful. Why? We're coming back to this now. Because there is a God doing something behind the suffering. And that is worth rejoicing over. It's not rejoicing in the pain. It's not looking and laughing at the suffering. No, it's an embrace of the reality of the suffering. Indeed, if you can look behind the suffering and see a God doing something, then you are free at that moment to embrace the reality of the suffering. The full reality of the suffering. You don't have to pretend it's not there. You don't have to hide a part of it. You don't have to escape from some of it. You can say, look, it really is this bad. It's probably worse than I realize, but there is a God behind it who is doing something. I can rejoice in that. How do we rejoice? How do you in that moment of suffering, trying to think about there is a God doing something behind this? How? Look at the phrase. Look look at your Bible right there. It says, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. 
What's Peter saying? There's a future grace that's about to come upon us. That one day, His glory will be there for you to see. For you to behold. All of it will be there. Rejoice now that you may also rejoice in that day when His glory has come upon us and we have nowhere to escape to. Suffering because of faithfulness to God is evidence of a future where you will be delivered from sin and pain which will give way to joy in the glory of the presence of God. Peter is saying, you and I can rejoice in the midst of pain because undeserved suffering is a sign that one day we will be overwhelmed with joy when we behold the glory of God with our own eyes. When that happens, you and I, when we think that way, when we look and trust that way, ah, this really stinks. This is hard. I don't want to do this. It's not fun. It's terrible. It's sinful. It's wicked. It hurts. But there's a God moving this moment to the next moment to the next moment to the next moment when one day he'll reveal his glory and I will behold it with my eyes and all pain, all suffering will be gone. One day, you and I will look back on this day, these days of suffering, whatever they may look like, we will look back on them so captivated by His joy and the glory of the moment that we won't be able to remember how painful the moment was. The weight of His glory will overwhelm our memory of the moment. As I was studying this, I was reminded of I preached a sermon on John 16 at Refuge a few months ago, a couple months ago, where Jesus talks about the woman in labor. And the idea there is that uh, uh, her hour has come uh, of, of labor and delivery, and it's painful, and then she has the baby, and there seems to be like a forgetting of the pain that she just experienced. So when a woman is in labor... Remember, John, when he's writing this, this is before epidurals and all that stuff. She's in pain, but, but when the child is born, again, she forgets her pain. It doesn't say that the pain is over or her body feels just fine. It says she forgets about it. Let's think about this. When the Bible says that God remembers your sin no more, is it like he looks over at the Spirit and goes, Hey, you know, I, I can't recollect what you know, Jimmy did. Can you help me remember? No, instead, I, I like how Keller says it, Timothy Keller says, instead God refuses to be dominated by it, to focus on it, to be controlled by it. And that's the same idea of what's happening here at the woman in labor in John 16. When the baby is born, all the craziness of what just happened is all still very much real and still very much visible. But what does the mother do? She reaches for her child. Her eyes go straight to the baby. Everything else going on disappears for those moments. 
she hears the cry, and with utter abandonment, she looks to see if the baby's okay, who it looks like. Is it a boy? Is it a girl? What color of a hair? Is it okay? Is it breathing? Everything else is still very much real. The pain is all still very much there. But for those moments, she is overwhelmed by the child and the joy of this child in her presence and in her arms. The joy that the woman has from the birth of the child has overwhelmed the pain. It overshadows the pain. Again, it's still there. The pain is still there, but the joy overtakes it. She will deal with the pain in the days ahead, but the joy of that child makes the pain all seem so worth it. And here's what Peter is saying. Fix your eyes on what's ahead. The glory to be revealed such that this thought this belief, this reality to be experienced someday overwhelms the suffering that we're in. That's how we can rejoice. The pain is still there. It's still got to be dealt with. But by His Spirit and His grace, I can cling to him trusting that one day his glory will come upon me and I will remember this pain no more. So fix your eyes on what's ahead. <clears throat> Lastly, in this section here, what an amazing miracle. Think about this. At the end of that verse, he says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of God and of glory rest upon you. I want you to think about Ephesians 2 with me for just one second. We who once did what? Follow the course of uh, the, the power of the prince of the heirs, the course of the world, sons of disobedience. Like that's us. That's us with the rest of the world. That's us. What's it take for you and I to walk in the name of Christ. The marvelous work of the gospel. That God would rescue our cold hearts, make it alive, that then we would have faith in Him and the resurrection and the work of Jesus on the cross. What a miracle it is that God could do a work in me such that I could live in a way that would bring insult from the world. We take, we think we just walk across that like, oh yeah, of course, that's what happens. It took Jesus dying on the cross for you and I to walk in the way that would be different than the world. It took God reaching his powerful hands into our hearts to work in us in such a way that we could walk different than the world. I like what trip, trip <clears throat> took my mind at this moment too trip that is to 1 Corinthians 4 where he says we have this treasure in jars of clay we have this treasure this spirit of Christ resting upon us but we're just jars of clay 
We are all imperfect clay pots that God is showing His glory through. Now be careful. It isn't the imperfections in us that are glorious. It's not the unholiness in us that are glorious, but the fact that He can show His glory in us through those imperfections. All right, we should move forward or we're not going to get done. The next one, remain holy in your suffering. Remain holy in your suffering. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Now, I I wanted to caveat this earlier on, and I I bit my tongue so that I could work on it here. But there's always this risk that you and I are suffering because we're evil. Uh, And that's not a sign of the eschatological truth that one day glory will come upon us. That's a sign of our flesh still at work that needs to be eradicated. Uh, So there's oftentimes where we suffer because of unholiness in us. And Peter is saying if you suffer, don't suffer because you're a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Listen, in moments of suffering come moments of spiritual vulnerability. When you and I are suffering, we become very vulnerable. The heat can reveal, does reveal the places where we are weak, where there is imperfections in us. In those times, we can begin to wonder, do I really need to keep walking this path that I'm on? Is it really worth it? Is one more conversation really worth it? Is one more difficulty? Do I really have to put myself in this position one more time? I'm serving in this ministry faithfully, and all I get is other people who aren't as committed as I am. Do I really need to keep serving with the same vigor and commitment? I'm laying my life down for my children, and all they continue to do is cause strife in my life. Do I really need to keep laying my life down for them? Or, let's flip it on the other side, children. I want to follow mom and dad. I want to trust them, but they they seem to get so angry. And I don't think it's righteous anger, and let's assume for a second you're right. Because it's, it's probably right. Do I really need to keep obeying them? Do I really need to keep trusting them? Suffering at the hands of your parents. And said, in our moments of suffering, we can multiply the trouble with our sinful responses. Here's the deal. When you look at this passage, don't just read murder. Read hate. Don't just read theft. Read covetousness, lust, right? Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. It's not just good enough to go, okay, I haven't murdered anybody yet today. Uh, I haven't stolen anything from the store. Uh, The the evildoer, that that seems like someone who does evil all the time. I don't think that's me either. Good, okay, meddler, that's just grandma, right? So what's the deal there? That was a joke, by the way, okay? My grandma's sitting out here. That was a joke. <laughs> oh, I might get in trouble for that one. Uh, 
murder. How, how about this? Let's put murder and put these in the context of suffering. Hatred towards someone else in the midst of your difficult trial. They deserve this more than me. Why isn't this happening to them? Now you're suffering as a murderer. Or, well, I'm going to move on. Theft. Covetousness. How about wishing you could steal the life of someone else and make it your own in a moment of difficulty? I want their life. Not this one. Covetousness. You're suffering as a thief. You are multiplying your sin. Or meddler. Again, thinking someone else deserves the suffering more than you. And you're meddling in their business. Peter says you are called to purity no matter what. It doesn't matter that life is hard right now. It doesn't matter that your emotions are jumbled right now. It doesn't matter that you've been wronged. It doesn't matter that someone has insulted you. It doesn't matter that your heart is hurting right now. It doesn't matter that your life might be threatened. You are called to holiness and to suffer as someone who is holy. So when you are in a trial... Does faithfulness to God get hard? You should ask that question and go figure out why. What is it I want more in that moment than the glory of God? What is it I want more in that moment than trusting and obeying Him? What is it I want more? Next one, don't be ruled by shame. Don't be ruled by shame. Look at 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Listen, we are, you and I are ruled by whatever we find our value and identity, our treasure in. Listen, your value, though, as a follower of Jesus is not found in the suffering. The suffering, like, listen, when you get into the midst of suffering, the temptation to think, this temptation is to think that this suffering I'm in is all there is to me. That's all there is to me. That's all there is to my life. But it's not. All in that moment of suffering, here's what there is to you. A blood-bought, loved child of God who's been given the righteousness of the king of the world and called to live a life of honor and glory for Him. Even in that suffering, there's a whole lot more to you than that suffering. Jesus paid for it. He says, instead, let Him glorify God in that name. So let Him, here's what He's saying, don't find your value in the shaming of those who are against your following Jesus. Instead, find your value in the value of God. That anyone who suffers find their inner sense of well-being in the name of God. And when that is true, you and I can rest. 
When that is true, we don't need anything from those causing you suffering. We don't need their love in an ultimate sense. We don't need their affirmation in an ultimate sense. We don't need their willingness to do whatever they should be doing. All that I could ever get from them could never compare to the name that I now have and bear. A child of God. And when we believe that, then you and I can serve. We can lay our lives down. We can speak the truth of the gospel over and over and over again. So don't be ruled by shame. Next, remember God's judgment. Remember God's judgment. 17 through 18, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? All right, quickly, this house of God picks up the image on the image of Christians as living stones in this spiritual house of God. Now, the idea of God's judgment beginning with God's own people, just read the Old Testament. It's all over the place. Judgment beginning in the house of God. Now that may seem, now this phrase might seem weird or awkward, particularly in our judgment-free zone mentality that you and I have. Even as Christians, well, we're not supposed to judge. That's what the culture says. We're not supposed to judge. And, 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 and God doesn't judge us, right? Because He's already judged us in Jesus, so on and so forth. Some of that's true, but hang with me for a second. Certainly, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we will be delivered from the destiny that is coming to those who disobey God by rejecting the redemption He provides in Christ Jesus. Yes, that is true. But there is ample teaching in, ample teaching that Christians will nevertheless be judged and that it is their, that, and that it is their standing with Christ that will bring the judgment to a good end. Passages like Romans 14, verse 10. All right, so Peter assumes that Christians will be judged along with the rest of humanity. Now, the suffering that Peter's readers are experiencing is an integral part of God's future judgment, which all human beings must face. But again, because of their faith in Christ, they need not fear this judgment. Now, let's get to the specific word here used for judgment in this passage. It may at first feel like condemnation and the penalty or punishment that consequently consequently follows. But here, the word for judgment can also refer simply to the action of a judge with no assumed penalty or punishment in view. Simply judging. Discerning right and wrong without necessarily including the outcome, the punishment. Let me quote someone. God will begin His process of judging humanity with His own people to see which are truly Christ's. Think of it as this passage. Compare it to the sheep and the goats passage, right, where He's going to separate them out. That's the idea of the judgment here begins in the house of God, separating out the goats and the sheep within the house of God. Again, that follows the same theme as the Old Testament judging and beginning with the house of God. 
Those who profess Christ are the first ones to be tested in God's judging action. And it occurs during their lives and throughout all of history. And God uses the suffering brought about by the hands of those who are clearly not His in order to test the purity of His people. It's largely, think of it this way, God dealing with the uncleanness in the hearts of His people. It's God's quest for holiness that's happening here. So why else would this begin anywhere else? Why would God's quest for holiness begin anywhere else but the house of God? Lastly, rest as you go about working. Rest as you go about working. Some of you think that sentence doesn't make any sense. Verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good, or while doing good. I always said good work, but while doing good. Our view of rest and work are oftentimes so skewed. Oh, I'm just so tired. I think I need to go rest, or I, I can't be working if I'm resting, and I can't be resting if I'm working, and so therefore, life becomes this ultimate pursuit of balancing rest and work and so on and so forth. But the Bible doesn't really think about rest and work as mutually exclusive, particularly as we see here in verse 19. Even the idea of the Sabbath is not about vegging in front of a TV all day so that you don't lift a finger to work. Yes, I believe we should have a regular Sabbath, a weekly day of rest. But even that can become just a checkbox. The point, at least part of the point of the Sabbath, is to remind us that as we work, we can and must entrust ourselves to the Lord. That weekly reminder is that all of this is ultimately dependent upon Him. That our rest is ultimately in Him. That our provision is ultimately from Him. That He is our Sabbath rest. That's what Peter's pointing to here. Peter says your Creator is faithful to care for you, to provide for you, to empower you, to grace you. He sustains you. The one who created everything also owns everything. It's all His. And he says this, you can entrust yourself to Him. So it's, listen, it's not enough to just have a day of rest. I know that many of the churches I've gone to, like, well, as long as you have that, then you're good. And what Peter is saying is that you rest as you work. That you rest as you go. You entrust yourself to the Creator as you do good. You can rest in Him. But listen, it's easy in suffering to rest in many things, like escaping from the moment or finding a way to control the situation or just trying to get through the moment, right? Just trying to get to the other side. Or maybe your method is thinking happy thoughts, like Peter Pan. It's really easy to forget in those moments that your only hope is not in yourself. It's not in other people. Your hope is in your Creator, the one with all the power and wisdom to do something about your situation. That's your only hope. So don't waste 
God's time trying to figure out what you can't figure out. Don't waste time in, what someone said this week, paralytic anxiety. We don't have to waste our time in these things. We can entrust ourselves to God. Because you know that you can rest in your Savior who rules over everything. You can now give yourself to the good work He has given you to do. Listen, people who are suffering God's way are busy. I, I have I want to caveat that word. I don't want to caveat it too much, right? Busyness is not equal to righteousness, and in our world, we prize being busy and all that stuff. And that's not what thinking here, and that's not what Peter's thinking here. What Peter is thinking here is that you're entrusting yourself to the Lord as you are busy doing His work. Think Ephesians 2 back with us, the works that God has prepared beforehand for you to do. That's what he, which should be everything we do, whether that's conversing at home with a spouse or typing away at a keyboard at our workplace or whatever it is, should be done unto his glory and for his kingdom. But what he's saying is entrust yourself to the Lord and people who do that are busy about God's kingdom. So let me say this, does suffering come as a surprise? Do you spend all your time trying to avoid, insulate your life from, or get out of suffering, or just longing for the next season? Listen, what if that next season never comes? There is a, there is a season that is sure to come when we see his face that'll be a new season, and that one is sure to happen. Jesus walked headlong into suffering, right? He went straight for it. But in the garden, think about this with me for a second, we see clearly that suffering was not something to delight in. For what did Jesus say in the garden? If this could pass from me, Father, please let it pass. So Jesus' joy, Jesus' determination, Jesus' happiness and satisfaction in the moment was not in the suffering itself. But Jesus said, I rejoice in the glory of my Father. I will do as He pleases. And so Jesus, in sovereign control over every aspect of His crucifixion, walks straight at it. He isn't surprised at the suffering. He remains holy through it all. He isn't ruled by the shame and the mockery. And he entrusts his life unto his Father, even to the point of death. And thus he continues doing the hard work of redemption. All because he had his eyes fixed on the marvelous glory of his Father rejoicing in the glory that was to be revealed as he walked through redemption. He knew at the other end of that tunnel was God's glory on display. And this Jesus says to you and I, follow me through suffering. 
For I took the ultimate suffering of God's wrath for you that was justly due to you because of your sin. I took it all. And now I use this momentary suffering for your joy and for God's glory. Jesus says, you're mine now. Walk with me even through suffering. Let's pray. Father, whether suffering has come upon us now or awaits us tomorrow or awaits us in a few days, Father, how we're thinking about missionaries sharing the gospel in places around the world that is hostile to them, where their lives are threatened, or maybe their, a loved one has lost their lives. Father, I pray that we would pray that we would believe these truths and that we would pray for those who are suffering in more extreme ways than we are, that we would pray that they would believe these truths. Certainly, we can pray that you would cease the suffering and that you would let the gospel go forward without the suffering. But, Father, we know that the suffering cannot stop the gospel going forward, even in the hardest of places. Father, I pray for our own lives that we would be so captivated by who you are, your gospel, your work that it would overwhelm whatever trials we might face such that we could view them rightly and clearly and respond righteously so that your gospel might go forward through us to those around us. I thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you for your work of redemption. Give us the faith to believe it. It's in your son's name we pray.